Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. My name is Isabella Tabarovsky, and I'm a senior program associate at the Wilson Center's Canon Institute. Thank you all for joining us today for our conversation, Feminism in Russia, from Soviet Samizdat to online activism. Before I move to introduce our speakers, a technical note, today's event will be conducted in English and in Russian. Uh, we will be offering simultaneous interpretation for today's event if you need it. Please take a look at your Zoom menu bar. You should see a globe there that will allow you to select the language that you need. Um, I should also note that this is the second in our series of events focusing on the status of women in Russian society. And for those of you who are new to the work of the Canon Institute, I'd like to mention that our mission is to improve American understanding of Russia, Ukraine, and the region through research and academic exchange. Please stay up to date with our work through our Russia File and Focus Ukraine blogs, also through our podcast, Canon X and the Russia File podcast. And in fact, on our Russia File blog, we are featuring right now a recent piece on the story of the four Soviet feminists that we'll be discussing today by my canonist colleague, Victoria Pardini. I very much recommend that you take a look um, at this piece. Uh, and I'd like to also thank our co-sponsors for today's event, the Sakharov Center in Moscow. The center's mission is to keep alive the legacy of the Nobel Prize laureate Andrei Sakharov, to promote the values of freedom, democracy, and human rights, to offer a platform for the public discussion about important historical matters and current events, and contribute to the development of Russian civil society. We're glad and honored to be holding this joint event with such a prominent and important Russian institution today. Uh, one final remark before I introduce the speakers. If you have questions at today's event, please use the Q&A feature in Zoom rather than raising your hand. It is also different if you've joined our other uh, events in the past. We solicit questions via our social media, via email. Today's webinar is different, so please use the Q&A feature in Zoom to submit your questions. We will be monitoring them and uh, we'll move to your questions following the presentation. And if you need interpretation, please select the globe and the language you'll need on the Zoom toolbar. So we're going to begin today's conversation with remarks by Dmitry Kozlov. Dmitry Kozlov was a 2019 Billington Fellow at the Canon Institute, where he worked on a project, Komsomol Meetings, Streets and Dancing Halls, producing spaces for public action in the 1950s, 1960s Leningrad. He continues his research on public protests, dissident movement, and some is that in the late Soviet Union as a research fellow at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. He's also the co-editor of Feminist Some is that 40 years later, which came out this year. Dmitry, please, the floor is yours. Uh, good evening, my colleagues in Russia, and good morning, our colleagues uh, in America. I'm grateful to Canon Institute and Sakharov Center for the opportunity to publish, uh, to republish this uh, book on feminism, which was published in Samizdat in 1979 in Leningrad. And I would like to comment on the context uh, where it emerged first. Well, actually, the background, the history of any Samizdat uh, text or book is a sort of a spy story. So back in summer of 
leave uh, the Soviet Union after publishing a tiny book. So this is what I would like to tell you about. Uh, so Yulia Woznesenska, their colleague and many other correspondents, members of Western NGOs and representatives of the third wave of Soviet uh, uh, emigrations uh, welcomed them. And they already knew about this book. Uh, so it all started back in August. Uh, 1979, and later on, in 1980, Voznesenska and Malachovska were sort of uh, of rock stars, so they spoke started and boycott campaign which followed uh, so, uh, and made them uh, unwelcome speakers in Leningrad. Uh, there was risk that foreign journalists would try to help uh, the dissidents so but so actually the female dissidents could leave uh, so this story of what happened back then is not finished and we need more evidence historical and uh, historians and philologists from both sides of uh, the ocean uh, still have the chance uh, to make new discoveries. So in July 1978, the three main editors-in-chief, uh, Tatiana Gorichova and Natalia Malachovska, uh, so they published their own texts and they found other authors like Yulia Voznesenska, who just came back uh, from prison, so she took part in actions by Leningrad artists. And there were other wonderful women uh, like Helena Schwarz, a poetess from Leningrad, and others. Well, it was also sort of a spy story. What happened uh, next? It's a tiny book of 120 pages, handwritten. 
So, but it was a collection of texts covering topics uh, which were not discussed in official uh, Soviet editions. So, uh, we had magazines like Krestyanka uh, uh, Peasant or uh, and Female Worker, official uh, magazines for Soviet females. But this almanac uh, also about such topics as shortage of consumer goods, uh, including food products, and uh, also it spoke about uh, women that carried the burden uh, for raising children and caring about uh, uh, sick relatives. It spoke about uh, horrible conditions in some maternity clinics and also abortion centers about the situation of women in prison or what happened to women and young girls who found themselves behind the grids after some after committing some minor crimes and, uh, unlike uh, official uh, magazines for females, so some of that happened to be the side where a woman uh, found uh, freedom, uh, but there were some problems which were ignored. However, by 1979, some of that was no longer a toy, a little toy for small groups of dissidents and underground poets, but it rather was a wide network uniting a number of uh, editorials uh, which could ignore Soviet uh, censorship. It's uh, important to understand that uh, our protagonists uh, only publish their text in some of that, unlike today's activists, uh, which actually make publications because uh, online, because it's cool, because it's uh, quick. So 45 years ago, their colleagues uh, didn't have a similar opportunity. And there are different texts uh, uh, from anarchists to monarchists and uh, fiction, but uh, only from 1970s some new uh, magazines emerged which started to comment on the topic of uh, female rights or women rights and uh, the question was raised on whether a woman uh, has its own voice and we all understand uh, what it is uh, we can remember about Ludmila Petrushevska, which commented on that uh, dark layer of the Soviet reality, on that lack of understanding, even from the side of progressive uh, readers. So this Almanac, uh, this book, it had an effect of an A-bomb uh, with a radiation, because many of the topics raised back then are still relevant and acute. Uh, only 10 copies of books were published, but, and Anna Sidorevich 
совершенно замечательная сидела в книге французской читательницы. Все еще found some support from French feminists. And by the end of 1978, the book was in Paris, and by the beginning of 1980, it was translated into French, and then it was published abroad and came back to the Soviet Union. So thanks to this uh, publication and also the connection between Ilya Voznesenska and the People's and Labor Union and the rightist uh, organizations based in Munich, uh, Germany, the audience of the book uh, uh, really broadened. Uh, there was also Continent uh, magazine in Paris. Uh, Russian third, uh, news from the Soviet Union, and a lot of uh, French, German, British uh, magazines uh, from tiny niche editions uh, to magazines republished uh, many of the texts, and uh, our heroines uh, became two stars after that. So they could overcome two borders, uh, the border represented by the official censorship and also uh, one related to the understanding. And we need to understand the background of all these women. Uh, so they were raised in the context of Leningrad's uh, culture and Tatiana Gorichova was the editor-in-chief of a and philosophical uh, magazine in Leningrad, 77. Uh, so, Mamonova took part in large exhibitions of uh, non-conformist artists in 1970s. So, this group of authors, they knew what they were doing. Uh, they had the experience of writing to summon that and publishing their articles. And another remark, uh, once you begin to discuss the topic, there is a question on if there were really just 10 women in the Soviet Union, so later on, uh, the magazine uh, titled Maria emerged in Leningrad, but there is a question, if they were the only 10 women in Leningrad, and the answer is yes, so they were the first uh, to be behind uh, the publication of the first women's uh, magazine. And later on, well, of course, there were similar idea expressed, ideas expressed uh, before. So the generation of historians and philologists, uh, they analyzed and found out that the texts were actually uh, different. So they were focused on the problems uh, that existed in the Soviet uh, uh, Republic. So there was a magazine called Ausra in Lithuania, 
published by the author. So it was called a simple Soviet woman. So there were texts about uh, labor camps in the Soviet Union and uh, Evgenia Ginsburg uh, was one of uh, the major authors. And we had texts having to do with the social uh, situation of women uh, on free medical aid, so some of the texts are lost in the archives, texts on emancipation, and I believe that there are some other texts and authors uh, we need to, uh, to look for them and to realize what was the environment around the women one who was involved in this uh, struggle but couldn't actually uh, publish their text. Uh, I think that historians need to analyze and try to find other female voices. So I would like to encourage you that you should focus on other heroines of the time. So, and finishing my small presentation, I'd like to conclude that in spite of the fact that we had some is that and we had uh, wonderful uh, female activists, Everything was uh, accumulated in just one place. Uh, some studs and uh, women and Russia. Uh, so it was just more than a sum of components, but it was actually a breakthrough which allowed the society to get to a new level. And the reality, as expressed uh, 45, uh, 40 years ago, showed. Uh, that it's a true evidence uh, of what happens back then in the Soviet society. Yeah. So now to, um, to move to Valerie Sperling, but before I introduce her, uh, just a reminder that if you have questions, please use the Q&A feature in Zoom, and uh, we will be monitoring the Q&A throughout the event, and we'll move to your questions following the presentations. Now, uh, on to Valerie Sperling, who is Professor of Political Science at Clark University. Her research lies mainly at the intersection of Russian politics and gender studies. She is the author of Sex, Politics, and Putin, Political Legitimacy in Russia, a 2015 book, which has won several prestigious prizes. Her most recent book is Trumping Politics as Usual, Masculinity, Misogyny, and the 2016 Election. Uh, Valerie, please, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Um, I'm delighted to be included in this uh, in this panel. So I'm going to be speaking about feminist activism in Russia from perestroika to Putin. That is from the late 1980s up through about 2015, when Putin was in the midst of his third presidential term and the so-called conservative turn in Russian politics had begun. So following the repression of the Leningrad feminists, who Dmitry Kozlov has articulated about whom uh, Dmitry Kozlov has, uh, has told us, the story picked up again in the late 1980s under Soviet General Secretary Gorbachev's policy of glasnost or openness. Um, at that time, there had been only one legal women's organization, the uh, Soviet Women's Committee, which was subordinated to the Communist Party and had very little in common with the idea of defending women's rights or improving women's status in the Soviet Union. 
Its main goal was to present a happy face to foreign delegations who came to the USSR and wanted to hear about women's status, and also to mobilize the, the female population to fulfill Communist Party goals. But with Glasnost, tiny feminist organizations also began to appear, especially in Moscow and Leningrad. These groups largely took the form of consciousness-raising clubs and then expanded a little, offering seminars on women's issues and publishing occasional issues of newsletters and journals. By 1991, several dozen small women's organizations had dared to form in the USSR, and activists in this, nation, in this nascent women's movement took it upon themselves to organize the first national women's conference, independent of state and Communist Party control. The conference was called the First Independent Women's Forum, and it was held in March 1991 in Dubna, a town outside of Moscow, where more than 200 women gathered for the event. But state monitoring of grassroots organizing was not yet a thing of the past. On the eve of the conference, rumors were spread in a popular newspaper that the conference would be a dangerous meeting of, quote, overexcited lesbians, unquote, and people were warned to keep their children off the streets. And when the conference began, there were representatives of the police and KGB in the auditorium. But no arrests were made, and although the organizers feared they might lose their jobs, that did not happen either. And by the time that the second Independent Women's Forum Conference was organized, toward the end of 1992, the Soviet Union itself was gone, and concerns about the repression of women's organizations had more or less disappeared along with it. Now, women's organizing in the 1990s was diverse, and most of it was definitely not explicitly feminist. By the mid-1990s, in addition to some self-identified feminist discussion clubs, crisis centers, research centers, and advocacy groups that sought to influence government policy, many women's organizations and charitable groups sprang up to help address women's unemployment and other negative economic effects of Russia's transition to capitalism. Women's groups that sought funding to support their activities found that the opportunities for domestic fundraising were extremely limited. In 1990s Russia, there was no such thing as checkbook activism, where you support the groups that you care about by sending them money. Uh, people in Russia at that time did not have checkbooks, credit cards were not yet widespread, and using the post office to do a direct mail campaign to raise funds for a civic group was completely unheard of. In short, since there were no social movement groups under the Soviet regime, there was no economic infrastructure in post-Soviet Russia to support them. Feminist groups in the 1990s therefore competed with each other for funding from Western foundations and governments that were interested in building civil society. The unfortunate side effect of that competition, especially in the big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, was to fractionalize the movement, creating incentives for many people to form their own small women's groups and compete over scarce resources. This fostered jealousy and made cooperation among the groups difficult. In order to win grants, organizations had to show their foreign donors successful, measurable outcomes, which in turn made the organization of women's conferences and seminars a priority, rather than public protest against gender discrimination or outreach to potential constituents and efforts to build a grassroots feminist movement. By the end of the 1990s, with foreign funding for Russian civil society drying up, many groups became inactive, 
And then as the 21st century began and the relative political freedom of the 1990s began to recede into the past, feminist organizing declined. The first, decade, the first decade of the 21st century changed a number of factors for social movement organizing in Russia, the most important of which was the rise of the internet. Um, this was a means of communication and a new organizational tool. Feminists took advantage of these opportunities, starting websites and discussion boards on Russia's new social media platforms. By 2010, feminist activism looked quite different than it had in the first post-Soviet decade. So what kinds of actions were feminists doing in Russia during Putin's first 15 years in power? The Putin era wave of Russian feminist activism in the public space started in 2010 after a young male artist in Moscow had raped a young woman. And this was reported and he went to jail. And while in jail, he was awarded a prize for moral support by a chic Moscow art gallery. And feminists then organized a protest and awarded the gallery a prize for amoral support. That kicked off a new wave of street actions, public protests by feminists in Russia over the next few years. They objected to sexist advertising. They objected to violence against women. They protested for LGBTQ rights um, and joined anti-Putin protest marches. They also protested for reproductive choice, um, a campaign that accelerated in 2011 um, when a number of restrictions on abortion were proposed. Now, one group at that time also started a sexist of the year competition where prizes were virtually awarded to public figures in Russia who make sexist remarks. In 2014, one of the prizes went to a man named Yegor Khalmagorov, who is a pundit in Russia. And he said, in a way that now seems weirdly relevant, uh, quote, when we take over America, the first thing we'll do is pass a secret decree giving American men who hear the word sexism permission to punch whoever says it in the face. And for those who tell me that it's not proper to punch women in the face, I'll say that as soon as a woman pronounces the word sexism, she ceases to be a woman and becomes a second-class object. Unlike the situation with the Russian women's movement in the 1990s, during Putin's third presidential term, feminists continued to organize small rallies, especially around International Women's Day in March. And for the most part, those gatherings were permitted to occur. Although in March 2013, a feminist rally in Moscow was disrupted by Russian Orthodox Church activists who shouted at the speakers at the rally, calling them perverts and Satanists, and even squirting syringes filled with what they said was urine at the women speaking at the rally. And police took away the women's leaflets and a banner that said feminism is liberation and arrested some of the feminists at the rally as well. So that was a worrisome development that provoked some activists to retreat. Feminists did go on publicly protesting though. Just for example, on May 1st, May Day, 2015, a very lively and colorful feminist contingent joined the annual labor rights rally in St. Petersburg. Among other things, they brought posters drawing attention to a spate of advertisements plastered on the walls and spray painted on the sidewalks of St. Petersburg, offering wife for an hour services. They brought posters noting that women and men are simply functional for the state and that they produce uh, and that women produce babies and men are recruited to die in wars. 
and they brought a clever see-through banner objecting to the glass ceiling that makes women's promotion in the workplace so difficult. Now, the most well-known self-identified feminist group in Russia of that era is or was undoubtedly Pussy Riot. And I'm not going to say much about them per se, because I think many of us are already familiar with their experience. Just as a reminder though, um, Pussy Riot is the group of young women in balaclavas who in February 2012 went into Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior and sang about 40 seconds of an anti-Putin song that they had written before being bodily removed from the premises. Three of the group were caught and jailed a few weeks later. Ekaterina Samusevich appealed her sentence successfully and was released on probation in October of that year, while Nadia Talakonikova and Masha Alyokhina remained imprisoned until they were released two months ahead of schedule in December 2013 before the Sochi Olympics. And likewise, the most obvious example of repression against self-declared feminists in Russia during Putin's first several terms in power was the punishment Pussy Riot received for their punk prayer and their other public criticisms of the Putin regime. Interestingly, the judge in Pussy Riot's trial focused on the group's feminism. And in fact, I would argue that she sentenced the three young women to prison, in effect, for being feminists. When they were sentenced to jail, the crime was technically hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. In other words, they were sentenced for a hate crime against the Russian Orthodox religion. But in the judge's sentence, she claimed that Pussy Riot's belief in feminism was at the heart of their anti-religious beliefs and thus was the motivator for their crime. Now, political repression hampered the activity of other women's groups in Russia too in Putin's third presidential term, especially in connection with the foreign agent laws and the general turn toward anti-American and anti-Western European sentiment by the administration. The foreign agent law has overtly targeted groups endorsing human rights and rule of law, and groups that the regime suspects might organize citizens in a way that could, however hypothetically, threaten the status quo of the existing regime. And at the time, the, the regime was paying some attention to women's organizations and was engaging in acts of repression, not only by making arrests at rallies, uh, like the uh, International Women's Day demonstration that I mentioned earlier, but using the foreign agent law to target feminist groups, either to deprive them of their Western funding or to delegitimate them by forcing them to identify as foreign agents. Russia's foremost network of groups bringing attention to the widespread issue of domestic violence, the Anna Center, headquartered in Moscow, was among the civic groups labeled as a foreign agent, and its director has been subjected to threats and other unpleasantness. Beyond explicit repression, there is plenty of sexism at the state level, visible in various policy proposals, for example, from Duma Deputy Yelena Mizulina. Among her most appallingly sexist suggestions for new legislation during Putin's third term as president was a proposal in April 2015 that women should not have access to higher education until they have produced at least one child, because after receiving an education, as we all know, women become focused on their careers. As Mizulina put it, um, learning and studying science isn't for women. Women's job is to give birth to and raise children and leave the science uh, and education to men. We need healthy, orthodox young women, not pale feminist geeks. Uh, as, an, as I'm sure that Ella Rossman will talk about, in recent years, the Russian state has gone on to enact patriarchal policies, including the partial decriminalization of domestic violence. 
So to conclude, I think that the Pussy Riot sentence and the repression of a variety of other women's groups in Russia and the feminist bashing that was going on by the Orthodox Church and by state officials like Mzulina as Putin's third presidential term got underway, what all that highlights and makes clear, I think, is that feminism is still somehow regarded as dangerous. And in my view, it's dangerous at least in part because feminism undermines the legitimation strategy of the regime. Putin's political legitimacy as a strong man or a tough guy, that political legitimacy rests on a socially constructed distinction between male and female, between masculinity and femininity, a distinction that feminism basically disrupts and dismisses. Without widespread accepted stereotypes about what constitutes masculinity and femininity, um, without sexism, which tells us that masculinity and those who embody it are and should be valued more highly than femininity, without that framework of understanding, you can't use the kind of political legitimation strategy that the Russian regime has been using under Putin. And feminism is dangerous precisely because it explicitly reveals and questions that patriarchal hierarchy where masculinity is valued over femininity. And if the regime couldn't use masculinity as a legitimation strategy, it would be at a distinct disadvantage. So feminism is actually dangerous. The fact that the Soviet regime so thoroughly repressed the female, the feminist dissidents in Leningrad in the late Brezhnev era illustrated the regime's concern about feminist dissent. The regime in Russia under Putin, by the middle of his third presidential term, also saw and continues to see the danger of feminism, which is why I think they take the trouble to dismiss it and occasionally to repress it. Uh, thanks very much. Thank you very much, Valerie. Um, so we are going to our last speaker. And before I introduce her, I'll remind you to please submit your questions via the Q&A function. And specifically to our Russian-speaking audience, my colleagues are reminding me to, to tell you that you please feel free to submit your questions in Russian as well. So we're looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, so our final uh, speaker, last but not least, is Ella Rossman. Ella is a historian and research assistant at the International Center for the History and Sociology of World War II at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow. She is working on her PhD dissertation focusing on late Soviet gender order. She is the co-founder of the independent educational project Anti-University and participant of the Free University. She is a feminist activist and works to educate the public about women's history, gender history, and the history of feminism in Russia and the Soviet Union. Ella, please, the floor is yours. Thank you very, very much. Спасибо большое всем коллегам за организацию этой очень важной дискуссии и за приглашение. И спасибо Дмитрию и Валерии за доклады. Я сегодня буду рассказывать про феминистский активизм самых последних лет. Постараюсь коротко обрисовать, как он выглядит, как развивается движение сегодня, какая повестка лежит в его основе, и сконцентрируюсь на том, какие есть локальные феминистские группы в разных городах и феминистские сети. Okay, um, so there is uh, no interpretation at the moment. Oh, it's okay now. Uh, okay, I'm as far as I can ask, hear. Uh, okay, so now there's... Okay, let me continue then. So, first of all, 
what were the grounds for my overview? First of all, I am a pale feminist focused on studies, as uh, Elena Mizulina would call me. I live in Moscow and I focus on projects uh, aimed at helping uh, women who are in prison and in colonies. My first observation was that uh, the feminist conflict in Russia is that you can be focused on feminists for many, many years, but you can uh, have no idea that there are other feminist groups in your city. So, uh, we have some major groups, everyone knows pussy rights, uh, and everyone knows them, but it's a little bit difficult to know about local groups from uh, smaller cities and towns, and at a certain moment of time I realized that I don't know what's going on outside Moscow and St. Petersburg, what's going on in Khabarovsk and other cities, if there are any feminist groups. And to improve visibility of those groups, I started to publish a digest of feminist events in Russia from 2019. So this digest is a website where before the Women's Day on the 8th of March, I tried to we gather news about all feminist events and I contact local groups via social networks, Big uh, K, Instagram, Facebook. I have my own blogs and I have uh, uh, a small audience from various cities and towns. I collect information from the media and uh, Till this moment of time, I could publish two digests and I would be very happy to share them with you. And a little spoiler, I really found that we have a lot of feminist groups and I started to do interviews with different groups. And I already published five interviews for an hour and a half or two hours. And uh, you should know that there are other projects in Russia where members try to map feminist movements. Uh, there is uh, a project called She or Ona. Uh, Kira Solovyova is the author and I keep cooperating with her. There is a new project of feminist translocality. There are other projects. It's not anything unique as an idea. So I believe that my intersection of feminist events published by the 8th of March was uh, quite successful. In terms of research, because the 8th of March is a very important day for Russian feminists and International Women's Day. And you probably know the background of this holiday uh, in Russia, so it emerged as a holiday devoted to women's rights, but in Brezhnev and late Soviet years, and in post-Soviet Russia, it uh, became a sexist uh, holiday of uh, beautiful and wonderful women, so, but uh, today's feminists try to rethink uh, the idea, the message of the holiday and the role of local feminist groups is uh, growing 
They try to arrange some public events. Uh, some groups which were not very active, which were silent through the years, so uh, they become visible in March. So I believe that March is a really successful time uh, when you can advertise the activities by all those groups. Uh, I have three main points to comment. So back in 2019, uh, I started with my first digest, and for sure we all published our third uh, published. So at the time when my first digest was published, I was really shocked by the scale of feminist movement in Russia. So I thought that I will discover 30 or 40 groups uh, in total throughout Russia, but uh, that was the number in Moscow alone. But there were a lot of groups focused on uh, therapy workshops, the growth of self-conscious, artistic workshops uh, dedicated to female topics. Partisan festivals with the, a big agenda, uh, like Fem Day in Samara, uh, Riot Day in Murmansk, or Fem Bayram in Ufa, and there were intercity events, regional events like uh, Non-Guilty uh, Music Festival, which covered uh, more than uh, 20 cities dedicated to home and family violence. And we have some feminist networks uh, which unite a number of organizations. And I could count over 300 events in 2019, and there were some local groups behind them, and I could contact some of them. Uh, they worked uh, in at least 34 cities, and in other cities, uh, so there are radical groups, or there are different communities which frequently don't know about one another, and uh, so I could discover that we have much more movements and activists that initially were visible from Moscow. And there were a number of reasons, our internal policy and the lack of funding uh, because we have that law on foreign agents that restricts our activities. Uh, so uh, most activists uh, spend their free time so and they lack institutional support because in case uh, in a city you don't have a cafe or uh, a cultural center uh, which welcomes activists, then it's not really possible to carry out that type of activities. So there is a group called Feminitive in Kaliningrad, but it is an exception. However, cities have uh, underground galleries, like in Kazan, a gallery in the building of the former furniture factory or cafes or cultural 
centers like in Nizhny Novgorod in 2019, there was a feminist festival in a bakery, and then baked some special buns for donations to the Nizhny Novgorod Female Crisis Center. And if uh, you don't have spaces uh, like those in a city, so that can be a problem. And also, mm, well, there is an influence of laws like uh, the law on propaganda of non-traditional values. For, and I'm not talking about just pussy, right? For instance, in 2018, the investigations committee initiated a case against Lubov Kalugina from OMS. And in 2019, they started to persecute Anna Dvornichenko, again, the researcher from Rostov-on-Don. So in the Southern University, and she was a student of that university, she uh, initiated a series of lectures on LGBT and she had uh, to leave the country because she was persecuted uh, by uh, center e of the FSB and also there were local groups like Cossack groups uh, which chased her and she had to uh, emigrate and we have a case of Yulia Tsvetkova from so she was accused of propaganda and spreading and sharing pornography. So, uh, the reason for persecution was that feminist activists uh, linked uh, their agenda to LGBT agenda. And at the time of my digest, I realized that feminist activists were a little bit scared of uh, uh, LGBT issues and uh, they requested us not to share posters uh, covering those topics. So we have uh, some difficulties and even for the time period of two years when I could compare my two digests, I realized that uh, new groups emerged in many cities and existing groups are now less active, so they no longer update their posts uh, in blogs. And the new generation of feminist activists, uh, uh, they don't register new uh, community, communities and organizations. And the result is a very specific uh, path uh, of movement, and I don't see any reason for stabilization. And the last thing I noticed uh, here in my digest is that different feminist groups have their local agenda, of course. But there are common topics, global topics, raised by very different groups in very different cities and towns um, and it is all uh, done in March before the 8th of March and uh, this year in 2020 family violence became the major topic uh, we have a new uh, draft law uh, frozen for now about family violence and it was 
a big event for feminist activists and uh, the human rights activists focused on feminists uh, were really involved in its preparation and I think that one third of all our events in 2020 were dedicated to family violence, to home violence and also modern Russian families uh, speak about uh, sexual violence and uh, women's uh, safety, everyday sexism, the situation of uh, disabled women and uh, vulnerable groups. So I think uh, those topics are quite clear, but it was a little bit uh, surprising for me that still there is a big uh, interest towards uh, uh, feminist art. So in 2014, in 2015, in St. Petersburg and in Moscow, the uh, um, feminist exhibitions uh, were booming. And uh, I could notice that this boom is uh, still continuing. Uh, and it happens in other cities. It's an important component of feminist events we have in March. Uh, there is a big discussion, for instance, in 2020 in Volgograd, there was a big festival of uh, Volgograd uh, Fem Art, a local event uh, in a number of museums. And it's a question for me why feminist art became an important topic for all those uh, local groups. So those are the main conclusions I can probably make uh, based on my small research and I will of course continue with other digest and I will keep on analyzing the landscape of uh, feminist movement in Russia and I'm happy to share our results with everyone who is interested. I wrote an article for the new paper, the Nova Gazeta, which is called The Other 8th of March. So many thanks uh, for this chance to speak before the audience. To all of our panelists. Uh, once again, if you have questions, please uh, submit them um, via our Q&A function. Uh, I want to start, we actually have quite a number of questions, and I would like to start with a question about the sort of the um, uh, incompatibility between um, authoritarianism and feminism. We have a very good question. I'm looking now for the specific formulation. Um, yeah, the, the person, Jasgul Madazimov, I hope I'm not uh, butchering the name too much, uh, is asking, I never really understood how authoritarian regime and feminism really contradict each other. Is it that the authoritarian regime at its core is meant to be ruled only by men? Who would like to? Valerie, please. I suppose I could comment uh, a little on that. Um, I think uh, authoritarian regimes uh, in, in general don't like to have, they don't like um, their subjects to have other ideologies to turn to, right? Ideologies that would enable people to question um, the regime in power. I think in this case, you know, I think in the, in the Russian case, um, and I think this is probably true uh, in, in many countries, including the United States, um, feminism just sort of erodes the socially constructed um, legitimacy of the people in power, 
right? It says um, that we should question um, masculinity as a value. We should question strength. We should, you know, question the uh, the use of violence. Um, there are a lot of elements that I think feminism, um, you know, and there are lots of different kinds of feminisms too, I suppose. But I think it goes beyond just the idea that women shouldn't be in power. I think it has, uh, I think it has a sort of broader implications about a critique of power. Uh, and having said this, Mitre, I actually want to ask you, perhaps you could elaborate a little bit more. I don't know if it relates to what Valerie just said or not, but I'm still very curious why it is that those specific, that it was specifically this women's um, group that provoked, that triggered this um, the exile, because at the time, as you mentioned, so many other groups already existed, dissident groups, some as that groups. I believe at the time, for example, Natan Sharansky, who I just interviewed, was already in prison. And what he wanted was to leave the country and they wouldn't let him. So what was it about this group that provoked such a reaction? Okay, so with your permission, uh, I would like to answer in Russian. I believe it's not, uh, so the story has not been completely told for authors were sent to exile, and I think this decision was made at the level of the committee of uh, the state security, the KGB, at the level of Andropov. And these tactics would apply to other women, like Natalia Maltsova was arrested and kept in prisons for uh, four months. Uh, also Natalia Lazarevo was arrested twice. So the tactics uh, was centered on splitting the group into parts. So these uh, activists uh, who stayed in Leningrad, they experienced uh, a lot of uh, interrogations and were searched by KGB. Uh, and as we know, uh, when you have a group uh, of political activists, uh, so there are uh, different methods of pressure. So you can send one person uh, to the prison and uh, another one to the mental asylum and uh, send uh, the third person to an exile just to erode the group. This is what, uh, what they did with the activists in the Jewish movement, the same exact thing. So they uh, they sent Sharansky's wife, for example, to, to Israel after a day of, the, after, you know, 24 hours after they got married, and then he was in jail for nine years. So it's kind of the same idea to undermine, demoralize people. Makes sense to me. We have a question from Olga Oleker. How do you think the goals of Soviet Russian feminism have changed over the decades? Who would like to address that? Ella, would you like to go ahead? Uh, yes, I would like to say a few words because I uh, uh, did not 
research uh, like uh, Dmitry does, uh, the Russian summers does, the underground press. But speaking about the groups uh, I deal with explicitly, they call themselves feministic. They are absolutely sure in their identity, in what they are. And in this dissident feminist movement, uh, just only Mamonova uh, was as brave to, as to call herself feminist. But no, it's not a problem any longer. They do it. Uh, speaking about the feminism of the dissidents, they were people who wanted to link religion, uh, religion and uh, the female agenda. Uh, um, today, I don't have any trends like this. Dmitry, I would like to dwell on it. It's difficult to speak uh, what was going on, on uh, in the post-Soviet system uh, after uh, the, this group of women were sent abroad. Uh, then after the perestroika, there were new groups and they called themselves feminists. Speaking about the religious component, Ella is right to say that only Tatiana Mamonova really called herself feminism. For the rest of the group, it was just a matter of combating the Soviet regimen, uh, which besides all the other terrible things, uh, was violating the uh, rights of the females, of women. Uh, Maria uh, was more about this. Speaking about religion, uh, how to be how to be free through a religion. This is uh, not the topic of our debate of today. Today, but for that circle, uh, when there was uh, a movement of, relig of religious violation, and they wanted through humility. Uh, to, uh, and through uh, just submission come to freedom. And that was the same generation actually, but absolutely different groups. But speaking about feminists, uh, it's quite a different thing. Uh, Ella probably knows uh, better uh, this issue. So religious agenda was not probably the most popular. Thank you so much, Dmitry. Valerie, you wanted to add something? A little in the middle. Um, in the 1990s, one of the things that I thought was interesting when I was doing my dissertation research in the mid-90s was talking to, you know, I interviewed women's groups, um, mostly the leaders of women's groups. And aside, as I said from our presentation, aside from a very small number of women who did identify explicitly as feminists, many women's group leaders said, oh, no, no I'm not, <laughs> oh, I'm not a feminist. Um, and so I was like, what do you, and so what does that mean? Like, what does feminist mean to you? And it, and it meant, you know, the sort of things that you would expect that it's a bourgeois phenomenon, right? It doesn't apply here in Russia. Um, it means you hate men and that you want to live separately from men. It means that you're a lesbian and, you know, we don't hate men under the Soviet Union. Everyone was repressed. Uh, and, and so I think that there's, there's some element of that, uh, of those sort of misconceptions about feminism that also had to be overcome. 
Thank you very much. Um, we have some questions that are um, referencing um, the kind of the history of um, of the feminist movement in the Soviet Union and in Russia. Uh, so one of them is from Janet Johnson, who is asking about the Soviet Women's Committee that uh, Valerie, I believe you described as being, or I'm quoting Janet's question, as being kind of a fake women's organization. So she is putting it in light of the revisionist history of the Bulgarian and Polish socialist women's organizations. Was the Soviet Committee fundamentally different from similar groups in Central and Eastern Europe? Or um, were there roots of feminist critiques and practice in the Soviet Women's Committee? I can answer shortly. This is not my topic, actually. But I know that in Russia, there are research people like Sasha Dolaver. They work with the documents of the Soviet Women Committee. And they try to show that there was not a fake body, that they still conducted a lot of work, and they uh, saw themselves uh, as uh, protecting the women's rights. Sasha is an interesting person. Probably you will invite her next time, and she will share with you probably how in some official Soviet journals like Rabotnitsa, uh, there were uh, discussions about sexism, about uh, the uh, uh, approach to women as to an object. Uh, so this uh, pro official women's organization will probably not just complete fake. And this is, uh, uh, it is not uh, only dissidents who could really express feminist idea. I think that's absolutely right. And, and I do remember poring over issues of Kristianka and the Rabotnitsa during Perestroika. And, and indeed, there were a couple of articles, you know, about domestic violence, and but especially tied to alcohol, you know, um, that sort of thing. Kristen Godsey uh, has written a lot about what the Soviet Women's Committee um, was doing abroad. And I think that's, you know, really interesting. It's something that I haven't, I mean, she was looking at, you know, the Bulgarian uh, Women's uh, Committee, but it's something I haven't looked into at all, but I'm glad to know that people are researching that because that is that is really interesting. Great, we have a question um, that refers to the relationship. Um, I'm actually going to broaden it. It's a, it's a question from Rochelle Rothschild who's asking uh, why is it, given that Soviet dissidents such as Sharansky, Brodsky, Solzhenitsyn have received great adulation and attention in the West, of course, Sakharov also, uh, it wasn't the case with feminist dissidents before Pussy Riot. So she's asking why that was. What was it largely sexism among dissidents in Western media? And I want to broaden it a little bit and ask uh, what was the relationship between the feminist dissidents in, in the Soviet Union and the broader dissident movement? Was there collaboration? Were they supported? Uh, who would like to address that? Please, Mitri. I'll try to answer. 
женщин-феминисток, да, и ленинградских, и большого произношения на индустрии была, и не только в том, что там хроника текущих событий или журнал СУН. Memories by different people who uh, shared that they went to Moscow and uh, they saw Tatiana Daroich, if I'm not mistaken, uh, but some human rights advocates, those who were still free, not in prison and in Moscow. And that was 1970s. That was a crisis time for the, for the protest. Speaking about Sakharov and Solzhenitsyn, their generation was no longer part of uh, the relevant, uh, well, combating uh, polit political instability and unfairness. Uh, but there was uh, Galina Grigorieva and uh, Sokolova. They referred uh, human rights advocates, the women in Moscow. Speaking about uh, the Western perception, I don't think uh, sexism is the point. The big political agenda has changed. Uh, so 1985 uh, was the book by Alexei, and uh, that was the point for the dissidents movement in the Soviet Union. And that is why those who are still abroad and they want to speak about, they are not supported because there are other problems like Afghanistan, the processes in China, uh, Iran, which are, uh, were much more interesting that feminism in those times until 1981 uh, Tatiana Monova st was still in contact with the Western feminists uh, well she worked but uh, the agenda that interest was not prolonged to that issue that was over. I don't think that was uh, about uh, the fact that somebody did not accept it abroad. Speaking about the third uh, migration wave, uh, uh, part of which was Solzhenitsyn, who was not a feminist, but he welcomed uh, the addition by Maria uh, and he wrote a uh, uh, well, that was in German, so for him it was also a matter of combating the Soviet politics. Uh, I could just add a little on that in the present period. Um, my colleague Lisa McIntosh Sundstrom at the University of British Columbia um, and I with our Turkish colleague Malika Seoglu wrote, um, uh, we did a research project on Russian and Turkish gender discrimination cases at the European Court of Human Rights. And there were very few Russian gender discrimination cases. Um, and one of the reasons for that was that the sort of women's rights network and the human rights network in Russia are pretty separated. And I think that's kind of characteristic of human rights um, you know, uh, networks around the world until fairly recently, and when we would ask, when we interviewed human rights um, organizations in Russia about, you know, basically women's issues and 
why aren't these sort of more part of your organization? They would say, well, we focus on fundamental prava. Like we focus on the sort of fundamental rights. Well, what do you mean? Well, we mean like freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, physical integrity rights, right not to be tortured, um, ethnic minorities, and interestingly, LGBT rights, um, but they tended to see women's rights as being more social rights, uh, sort of outside of the sphere of human rights. Now that has changed and the newer organizations are the ones that are actually bringing um, domestic violence cases to the European Court of Human Rights, like Valeria Valodina's case. Um, so that is definitely shifting in the most recent times. But, um, but I think up until then, there are sort of two distinct networks. Okay, anybody else? Ella, no? Okay, then I will, I will move to the next question. So I want to ask you um, a question that came from Elizabeth Wood, who is asking about the long-term effects of the Soviet claim to have solved the so-called woman question. So Elizabeth is asking, how might that have helped and hindered the development of today's feminism? And do you think, looking back, that the work of Jeanne Dell in particular had long-term benefits or was it really mostly without any positive benefits? Я могу немножко да, начать. Ну, для современных, вот, наверное, надо важную вещь сказать, которую я не сказала в своем докладе, что, конечно, те... These are the new, more active feminist uh, institutions, more active than those created in the 1990s. But to me about this new generation, I speak with, there is no question, uh, no, no one says that all the problems of women were settled in the Soviet Union. No, this is not an argument and they don't use it. There are different debates, different people uh, discuss about different kinds of feminism, radical, uh, Marxist, uh, shall we go back to socialism? Uh, uh, so, so there are socialist feminist movement. There are other unions. Who support uh, socialist ones? There are others who are opposed to oppose them. But today there is a consensus approach that the human rights problems are here. We have a question from uh, Julian first, and I think it correlates with some other questions that are kind of along these lines. Uh, a question about second wave feminism of the 1960s and, never and, and 70s. So Julianne writes that uh, second wave feminism never quite made it to Russia, Soviet Union, except for the few groups that Dmitry Kozlov mentioned. But then in the 1990-2000s, Russian feminism jumped straight into gender rather than women's question. Do you agree with this impression? And if yes, why do you think this was? How does it affect Russian feminism's character today. I think, that, I think that's a really interesting formulation, right? I, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it quite that way before. But I, I would say that um, you know there so when 
so in the 1990s, gender was such a new and unfamiliar term in Russia. You know, I, I, that was another question that I asked everybody. There was the Moscow Center for Gender Studies. And outside of Moscow, when I was in Ivanova and Chebaksari, you know, I would say to people, you know, what is what does the word gender mean to you? And, you know, people had absolutely no idea. I remember Nadia Ashkina, who's a you know, journalist and well-known journalist in Moscow, she was, you know, she was finding that she would use the word gender and it would be changed by her editor to tender, uh, because that was like another new word, right? Having to do with the banking sector, I guess. And um, so it was just completely, it was completely unfamiliar. But the concept though, you know, of gender, the idea of the social construction of, um, of sex, right? The idea that, that our biology doesn't determine who we are or what we're skilled at or what we can do. I think that was very much, um, I, I, I think that had, um, in some ways, I think that caught on pretty well in the 1990s and that partly what we're seeing now is more like a, a reaction against it, not what we're seeing among feminists, but you know, sort of the regime and the Orthodox church, you know, activation against the idea of social construction. They're still pretty stuck in the essentialist, um, you know, way of uh, way of looking at things, um, and you know, and for now, I would I would just agree with what you know with what Ella said. There's a striking amount of conflict over what type of feminism it's okay to to belong to. Um, yeah. And may I? I I think I read in Anastasia Pasadskaya article that the term gender was brought uh, to the agenda of 1990s uh, to have a clear separation from women's topic uh, due to some negative connotations to protect gender studies for their future development. And I think that in modern feminism in Russia, and that was a borrowing from US studies, we have gender critical activists which are against using the term gender. We have uh, such activists. So kind of two questions that I think are part of the kind of two sides of the same coin maybe. So one is from Golfo Alexopoulos uh, for directive for Valerie specifically, but I would say that anybody who wants to answer it, jump in. Have you detected any changes or shifts in gender norms, percept perceptions, perhaps due to COVID or women's activism in Belarus that could undermine Putin's legitimacy? So that's question number one. And then from Eleanor Hardy, the question is what can um, other ways for organizations, grassroots campaigns to encourage feminist values without it being a perceived threat to Russian national identity and um, by the Kremlin. Well, I could comment a bit, I guess, on the first uh, on the first question. Um, I think that under COVID, there's sort of um, almost a hardening of gender norms. Um, you know, and I can say. I can say more about that with regard to the United States probably than with regard to, to Russia. I feel like masculinity, uh, you know, has, has just come to the fore, you know, especially with, uh, you know, with 
Trump insisting that we can't let the virus dominate us and all this refusal to wear a mask, you know, masculinity with a K, <laughs> you know, that you really, uh, and then there's also been all this efforts to undermine um, the masculinity of male politicians who do wear a mask. You know, you think about Joe Biden criticizing Trump for having taken off his mask, you know, infected with COVID, walking into the White House with the mask off. And Biden put out a very short ad showing, him, showing Trump taking off his mask and Biden putting on his mask. And, um, and Tommy Lahren, a, a conservative Fox News commentator, tweeted out, um, how about a purse to go with that mask, Joe? You know, to just sort of say, um, you know, that it's, it's, it's feminizing to, uh, to wear a mask, it's weak. And so I feel like with COVID, there's, it, the, the other thing that came up around COVID, of course, is increased activism in Russia around domestic violence. Um, there's a lot of concern, very justifiable concern that women wouldn't be able to escape their abusers. You know, the time that women usually leave is when the abuser is at work or is away on a business trip and COVID made all of that impossible. So I think there was quite a lot of attention um, because of the pandemic to, um, to domestic violence and the need for activism and legislation on, on domestic violence. And what about, what, what can, how can groups work to encourage feminist values without necessarily provoking kind of without being a threat. Is that, uh, is that possible? No. Well, if we would talk about modern uh, feminist groups, I think I mentioned that modern feminist groups try to be, stay away from LGBT agenda just to disguise the destructive potential in the eyes of uh, other people. And also, the word feminism is often substituted by the word female, female topics. But I believe that in modern feminism, I'm not a researcher, but back in the 90s, the groups of activists still believed that they could come to an agreement with the general public and with the government organizations, and they were looking for a compromise. But I don't believe that today's feminists, they really believe that the compromise is possible at all. I think that they believe we are behind the point of no return. The feminist groups try to be flexible. They try to cooperate with the crisis centers for women, which opened back in the 1990s. I know that in Kazan, feminists help crisis centers by high tech, by social media coverage. So they don't completely separate themselves uh, from their agenda. But, well, no, I, they no longer want to be that uh, as flexible as they used to be. But we need to, well, evidence to prove that. I think there's really something to that. Um, you know, thinking about how 
feminist groups can you know work to encourage their values without being a threat. I, I think in the 1990s, um, something the, the language that didn't work was the language of equality because that was as you were saying before the sort of the Soviet language and nobody wanted to hear about you know nobody wanted to hear about that. So the language that um, that was adopted was the language of human rights and specifically like Hillary Clinton's line I think at Beijing in 1995 women's rights are human rights and that seems very kind of innocuous um, you know women are people like who's gonna who's gonna object to that um, but I think it's pretty hard to explicitly um, endorse feminist values without constituting a threat. I think that, I think that Ella's right about that. Thank you very much. We have a number of questions about uh, Russian feminism as it relates to other countries and uh, not necessarily uh, the West, but more more broadly. So, um, so uh, yes, how could we, Ekaterina Badyagina is asking, how can we place Russian feminists on the map of global feminism? Uh, how would you define it? And, uh, and we have a question from Jusgul Madazimova, who is writing that she is from Kyrgyzstan, where one of the main obstacles that feminists face is the values of Islam and the supporters of the dominant religion. Uh, so again, how is Russian feminism different or unique in that uh, in its relationship with feminism in other countries? Anybody would like to start? Okay. <laughs> um, so, I mean, interesting, right, about religion. Um, I, I think that orthodox religions of all kinds are the natural enemies of, of feminism, right? Whether we're talking about Russian orthodoxy or Jewish orthodoxy or Islamic orthodoxy, I think um, they all tend to have an essentialist view of men and women and the proper roles and behaviors and functions of, um, of men and women. Um, you know, the question about Russian feminism as it relates to other states and, and where it fits, you know, for, um, for a long time, I think the idea was that feminism in the third world meant something very different from feminism in the first world. I think the common territory for, uh, for feminists around the world is on violence against women. Uh, but this is something that happens everywhere. It happens irrespective of class. It happens irrespective of, um, you know, any other kind of identifier. So I think that that's, you know, I think that that's something that, that brings um, feminists together around the world. Um, that's, that's sort of where I would start. I don't know if Ella would like to continue. Yeah, thank you. Um, um, I don't know uh, what happened with the transfer of values in the modern Russian feminism to the radical feminist agenda, and, uh, this uh, agenda on whether we can admit uh, transgender people to the movement, so it found uh, very like uh, favorable ground here and there are a lot of battles and discussions 
of the internet on whether we should tolerate truth people in our movement. So I see the link of the transfer with the global agenda and what's going on in other countries. But as for the Russian feminism on how we can see it on the global map, Thank well, it's a little bit difficult much. for me to answer. Um, we have a question that maybe, Dmitry, you could address briefly. Um, of course, Alexandra Kolontai is one of the best known figures in the Russian kind of early feminist movement. And the question is, and I'm going to broaden it a little bit, is what, uh, what has been her influence? Is, is, is there still, is it possible to pinpoint her influence in the development of Soviet of feminism in Soviet times, that, as you studied it, uh, and how about today? So, Alexander Kolontai played an important role for feminism uh, globally, but as for uh, feminist dissidents, uh, well, all of them uh, tried to stay away, to keep a distance from the Soviet state and uh, Soviet values. Uh, so in the introduction to the almanac I mentioned, Kolontai uh, was mentioned and uh, Vladimir Lenin uh, was talking about emancipation, but the Soviet Union actually forgot about that. So it was mentioned as a fact. There was no revisionism saying that we needed to update the Soviet project and make the Soviet Union great again. No. In Maria magazine, there was an important discussion about Marxism and Leninism and how they see feminism. So, the majority of members who took part in publishing Maria magazine, uh, so they were anti-Soviet uh, in their position, so uh, Alexander Kolontai was not relevant for them. Over time, uh, some of them acknowledged that Kolontai influenced their family uh, histories, recalling their grandmothers who took part in some revolutionary initiatives. But back then, their main text, well, of course, they read Engels, uh, but they had uh, other figures that impressed them more than Alexander Kolontai back in the day. And we still have so many questions, and I know we're not going to get to all of them. We only have time left for one, and it's a question from Michelle Rifkin-Fish. She's asking, um, what additional kinds of problems related to gender are concerning to Russian women beyond domestic violence, sexual assault, LGBT issues, and other specific issues that perhaps differ from the most commonly discussed Western European American feminist issues? And she's, she adds that she's thinking of postponement or rejection of childbearing, for example, legitimizing men's involvement in caregiving, etc. We only have two minutes to answer this question. And Ella, I want to point out that several people have asked uh, you to provide links to your digest. So I wonder if you can drop those in the chat. Okay, so who would like to take uh, Michelle Rifkin Fisher's question? Ella is probably giving her, Ella, go ahead. 
Okay. I will gladly share the links uh, in the chat box. And uh, of course, there is local gender in 2019. Well, in 2020, family violence topic really dominated. It became more and more visible. But in 2019, I initiated some events dedicated to uh, immigration and it's specific in the post-Soviet countries. Uh, now people who come to Moscow and other Russian cities, they used to live uh, in the former Soviet Republic, uh, but now they are not wanted, they are really vulnerable, especially female workers. That's a separate topic. Uh, another top important topic is the attitude towards disabled women, and we had two festivals uh, in Moscow, uh, women, disability, feminism on what uh, women with disabilities should do. Well, and I need to double check it, but Femme Bayram Festival in Ufa, I believe that it uh, touches upon uh, the topic of Tatar women. We have a lot of ethnic groups in Russia, so the local agenda of Tatar women, their history, their intellectual background. Uh, we have a lot of events dedicated to those topics. Okay, I think that we are going to wrap up here while Ella puts her links into the chat. I'm going to thank our panelists very, very much for joining us for this fascinating conversation. The recording will be made available soon on the websites of the Kennan Institute and the Sakharov Center in English and in Russian. I want to thank everyone who joined us today and asked such excellent questions. I want to thank the Sakharov Center once again for co-sponsoring today's excellent discussion. And finally, a big thanks to our translators, Mitri Vinyavkin and Daria Nosavitskaya for their superb work that made this bilingual event possible. And finally, finally, I'd really like to thank my team, especially Victoria um, and Nina, who really made this event possible and organized every detail of it. So thank you all very, very much. We we'll look forward to having you with us another time at another event.